Well, good morning, friends. Welcome to Canterbury Gardens Community Church. My name is Shabu. I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors here at Canterbury. We're so glad that you took the time to check out our 1030 service, whether if it's you're listening to it for the first time on our YouTube channel, maybe you've come across our podcast, or maybe you're checking us out on our website. Thanks for uh, spending time with us. so this morning, friends, we finish our series in the book of Ezra, and as I started the series in front of this, I thought I'd finish the series in front of it. Um, some of the work is still going uh, on in our church building, um, so it had to a bit of a pause due to the restrictions, but uh, yeah, we're, we're on our way soon. Um, before we finish our series, I just wanted to kind of give you a sense of where we're being, um, heading after this particularly if you call Canterbury home. We as a church leadership have been praying and thinking about our next preaching series and where we've landed has been that we've landed on the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is part of the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can look up 1 Thessalonians, you can Google it, you'll land there. But what I wanted to do, I guess, is to give you, um, I guess, an encouragement to consider as we jump into 1 Thessalonians in a couple of weeks. We're doing a seven-week series in this uh, wonderful New Testament letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. And there's probably three ways I would suggest for you to consider digging deeper into 1 Thessalonians. One, pray. (laughs) Pray that the Lord would use 1 Thessalonians as a way of shaping your heart and the heart of our church community. But also maybe grab something like I showed last week, the ESV journal, which has where you can buy 1 Thessalonians. And it's just the text. It has a few lines next to it so you can write and take notes. Maybe the other thing is to actually um, get plugged into a small group if you haven't already. This is a great time to check out small groups, uh, particularly in this season that we're in here in the state of Victoria. Uh, and part of our small group series, um, for small groups that is, We're going to be looking at a book, a study guide called Living to Please God. Uh, And all small group leaders will give you access to that and let you know how you can get that. And that's one way to do that is to dig into 1 Thessalonians, is to do the questions and to consider whether if you're in a small group or not, just to to, to get to know more of what God's heart is in this uh, wonderful letter. Maybe memorize some passages from 1 Thessalonians. Maybe you could actually put it on your bathroom window, uh, window, mirror, uh, and, and, and have a, a read of it. Maybe memorize some of these passages. And like I started, pray. Pray that God would use 1 Thessalonians for us as a church community and family to continue to be shaped to know God more and to be changed by his word. Well, friends, we come to the last two chapters in the book of Ezra in chapter 9 and 10. So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn, press, slide, uh, and listen to the Word of God being read to you, particularly from Ezra chapter 9. It's going to be coming up here on the screen now. Today we shall be reading from Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jubazites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost, 
As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practiced these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Friends, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning as your scattered people, as your scattered church, as we gather around lounge rooms or whether we listen to this later on, whether we are followers of yours or skeptics, Oh, Lord, would you reveal more of yourself to us through your word? Would you change our hearts this morning, particularly even more this morning, as we consider faithlessness and faithfulness? Jesus, we pray this in your mighty name for your glory. Amen. So friends, last week we, we landed in Ezra in the previous chapters and we, we were reminded that it is the hand of God had led Ezra to the word of God to step out in faith to serve God. This morning I want us to consider two things. One, I want us to consider the faith, a faithless people and secondly, I want us to consider a faithful God. 
Uh, prior to this passage, most of the challenges have been coming, all the difficulties and opposition have been coming from external sources. But now, in these chapters, the final chapters, the problem is from within the community. What is the problem? It is the marriage of Jews with non-Jews. You're probably thinking, and like most of us, how is this relevant for me today, Shabu? Friends, I know it may sound a bit archaic, and actually, in our day and age, it may even sound, sounds a bit racist there. And particularly for those of us who have grown up in the church world, we come through these kind of Old Testament passages, and our temptation is to kind of skip over it and go, oh, that's kind of Old Testament stuff, we'll just leave it, it sounds a bit weird. Friends, if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, all of the Bible is the Word of God, and it's to reveal, like we were sharing, like we were unpacking last week, it reveals who God is, these verses actually have a purpose for us even today. What is that purpose, you might be asking? Uh, before we jump into that, I want us to read again from Ezra 9, and particularly verses 1 to 4. Would you read with me? It's up here on the screen. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with the abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Lots of ites there. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons. So the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithless faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, my cloak, and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the return exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. It's the word of the Lord. Friends, um, in these verses, we actually have a clue. And the clue is the term, the holy race, in verse 2. Um, I find that English in this particular context is probably not helpful. Literally what it's saying is it should read holy seed or offspring. So this is not a race thing. <laughs> Actually, you can look back in Ezra, there's illusion of, of inviting uh, um, other people and races in from Ezra 6, for example. And we also know the stories of Rahab and Ruth. And the Lord Moses actually made uh, places for sojourners, like places in Numbers 9, verse 14. The invitation was there for them also. But to get a sense of why we need to have a quick uh, a sense of the weight of this, I think what we need to do is to have a bit of a history lesson. And that cockatoo is pretty loud, hey? <laughs> Would you look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 to 4? Remember, right? Ezra is a scribe. He, he, he understands the law of Moses. And so he most probably knows exactly what Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 4 says. It's up here on the screen. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Garishites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. 
You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve our gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. And friends, I would encourage you uh, to continue to read up to verses 11 in that passage. But I want you to notice those Etites are there again. It's almost as identical in the passage that we read in Ezra. At the heart of it, what God is saying to the people of Israel is, hey, you belong to me. You are my people. And not only that, we have made an agreement, a covenant. So don't make it with any others around you. And one of the most strongest ways to show there's a covenant is in a marriage. It displays not only those people entering that marriage, there's an exclusivity to that relationship. It displays to the world around watching, saying, we belong to one another. This relationship is exclusive. And God also knows what will happen if that happens. He's not racist. He knows what will happen is that when they intermarry, in this context, in this culture, in this moment, what will happen is the fruit of worship of other gods. Friends, this is why it's a big deal. You know, in this moment, we need to understand when the officials approach Ezra, that moment in the passages that is in front of us, and Ezra 10.9 reveals this to us, is that it's four months after Ezra's uh, arrival. And what Ezra's charge against them is that they've been faithless. Or another way to put it is they've been unfaithful. And in the Hebrew text, it, there's this wordplay going. It's very strongly connected with the language of marriage. They've been treacherous. They've acted against Yahweh, their God who they have relationship and covenant with. Like I was saying, friends, the Old Testament passages, um, it's easy for us to skim over it and say, well, we're New Testament people. You know, uh, this is not a conversation of whether you can intermarry or not, okay? Uh, There's nothing about, uh, can I marry different people from different races? Um, I'm guessing and I'm assuming we would say, certainly so, definitely. Otherwise, I'm in big trouble, right? So what's the point? What's, what's relevance here? Uh, friends, I remember how we shared last week that the Bible reveals to us who God is. It also reveals to us who we are. In this moment, we are reminded the heart problem of all of mankind, including people who are his. The temptation is, and constantly will be, to be faithless, to be unfaithful to God. Um, it could look very different for us in many ways, but in a sense, we may not say, look, we're not worshipping foreign gods, Shabu. And that's the reality of what's going on in Ezra's time. But the temptation is still true for us to be faithless or to be unfaithful to God when we are tempted to worship anything, whether if it's a person or thing, other than God. Now, what could this look like? Uh, and in this moment, I think automatically we may go to those vices, those, 
sinful things and we might um, kind of play it through our heart and head and, and that's fine but I think what it doesn't do it gets underneath on what's really going on this is that moment where there's something or someone that's calling out to our hearts to find our joy security pleasure hope trust or peace there's a guy by the name of Tom Wood, and it's up here on the screen. He came up with this chart where he wanted to dig in deeper to talk about what he describes as idols. Uh, some call this the idols of the heart. So there's the power idol. This is the desire to be in control, have position and influence and success and strength. These are the things that define us. This is what finds joy for us. What we're forgetting is that God is glorious. So we don't have to produce results. Then there are those of us who are tempted to pursue the approval idol found in relationships and achievements and ethnicity or social circles or appearance. Rather than trusting in the truth that God is gracious. So we don't have to prove ourselves. And there's the security idol where we find ourselves finding our hope and security in, in family and finances or even the very protection around us or even religion itself or safety of future. But the truth is, God is the one who's great, so we don't have to be in control. Or there's the comfort idol. We find comfort, uh, pleasure, uh, the comfort idol shows in so many ways in our culture more than ever, in pleasure, in health, in freedom, in excesses of these pleasurable things or these comfort things uh, in home or vehicles are, are material things or even the very practice of recreation. The truth is God is good. So we don't have to look elsewhere for comfort, peace and fulfillment. Friends, um, the whole point of this is to, is to get us to think a bit deeper, to, to, to get underneath the skin and dig deeper into our hearts. So the question for you and for me, if you're a follower of God, what is our idol? Another way to test it out is, in any way, have we been unfaithful this week to God, this month, in this season of lockdown? And if you're someone who's a seeker or skeptical to the, the good news of the Bible, I want you to know, firstly, I've got a secret to tell you. Followers of God are no better than you. We may pretend at times and we may sound like we are, but we're not. And if anyone tells you that, they're either blind or they're lying. But I want you to know, whether you realize this or not, you are a worshiper of something or someone. You may not realize this, and you may not have a physical idol in your lounge room that you worship to. Maybe you do. But at the heart of it, it's you rejecting God's loving authority, and it's really displaying your faithlessness towards him. Friends, the question is, what is your hope in? What is our hope in, whether if you're a seeker or a follower of God? Now, I, I know the temptation right here I mean, for me 
get to the good news. That feels a bit uncomfortable. It sounds very heavy on a Sunday morning. And you know what? You probably could turn it off if you want right now. But we need to be confronted by the weight of our sin. And the hope that we can only have by a faithful God who moves towards us despite of our faithlessness. Have a look with me in Ezra 9. Ezra prays this prayer in verse 6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and I blush to lift up my face to you. My God, for your iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up in the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we've been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering and to utter shame as it is today. Now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So Ezra hears the report and he's overwhelmed by the reality and guilt of the sin of his people. Now you've got to remember, right, as we said, he's a scribe. He knows the law of Moses. He knows it intimately in depth and the weight of sin. His response is a phenomenal one. I mean, he's so ashamed and humiliated to the point he cannot even consider looking to the heavens to pray, which would have been normal in that culture in that time. His very posture and weight of that sin is so heavy. The language is as though the floodwaters are rising. It's way above his head. And although Ezra is the scribe, he's a priest, and we've been seeing he's a pretty stand-up guy, he could easily say, it's them. But as you pick that up, what does he say? Our iniquities. In this moment, Ezra knows he too is guilty and he's interceding also for his people on their behalf. He grieves, he mourns. He displays the process of what known in Christian language repentance. That is, He's turning away, but also he's not moving away from God. Rather, he's moving towards him, just as God moves towards him. And this is why in verse 8, he says, Now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hole within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving, in our slavery, and he talks about how they are slaves. But did you see that where he says, but has extended to us his steadfast love, talking about God and his character before the king of Persia, to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God. He knows the very reason that they are back where they are has actually nothing to do with them. It is God's grace, his favor. He knows that the little reviving they're having that's going on and experiencing is God's grace and favor. And yes, they are slaves. But 
But he knows it's only God that can save them. He knows that God has this language of steadfast covenant love. It's been displayed and poured out by even the use of a Persian king to show that favor, to come and rebuild. Yes, he's stating the facts that we already know, but what he's displaying for us, friends, for those listening then and for us, God is the one who is faithful despite of their faithlessness towards him. And in this moment, he's asking, he's asking, unless God is gracious to them, they're actually done for as a people. The only thing that Ezra has to cling to in the midst and the heaviness of this weight of sin, of being faithless to their God who has been so faithful to them, all Ezra can do is cry out to God who is just and merciful. God has indeed shown his mercy to Ezra and the people by allowing a remnant, but also God cannot tolerate sin And his very actions in choosing to bring judgment on a faithless people, he can and he might and he would. And this is why Ezra is stepping in and crying out to God, not only for himself, but for his people and crying out for mercy. And friends, you kind of fast forward to today. In our individualistic culture, the idea of communal sin, even if we're not responsible for it, seems very foreign. And sadly, in our Christian subculture, as we've used language of having a personal relationship with Jesus, it's just you and God, all those things, which in a sense, there is truth to that for sure. But what it's done, it's created this very individualistic faith. So when a nation sins or a church community sins, We may go two ways. One way is we cry for blue murder and we're ready with our Bible to get those sinners. Or we don't take it so seriously. We're under grace. Friends, whoever you are, the only remedy for this is actually not to look to ourselves or to look around us, but to look towards the one who is faithful to be captured by God's mercy and his justice. See, his mercy is there, is there for us to, to, to receive and to, 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 to find great hope and joy in. But he also takes sin seriously. Uh, see, another way to put it is his mercy means for those of us who are so proper and correct and take sin so serious. In a sense, we are tempted to constantly say, look how faithless they are. Look how faithless I am. Look how faithless the world is around us. Look how faithless those Christians are. Look how faithless this church is. Friends, if that is you, oh, my brothers and sisters, take a deep breath. Don't forget what we discovered already. His mercy endures forever. And what will happen is if you don't have this in the right kind of balance and space, this kind of road will either lead you to a space of legalism and in using that language of idol worship again, the idol of power. 
or could lead you to say, I'm never worthy. I suck all the time. Friends, it's not about whether you're worthy or not. That's not the point. It's actually to stop looking at ourselves, to rather to cause our hearts to look the one that is only worthy. The one who is merciful to you and I. This is grace. For those of us who are tempted to live lives under the banner of, well, I'm under grace, I can, you know, there's these things I can do, but, you know, it's not a big deal. To understand true grace. To, in a sense, grow a hate for faithless religion. It's a reminder of the cost of grace. See, the type of faithless religion will ultimately breed in us a real, what's known as cheap grace. True grace moves us to say, God, I am so ashamed for sinning against you. And you are just. And you have the right to discipline me. You have the right to judge me. But I thank you for your grace. All I have to rely on, like Ezra did, is to cry out to you and say, have mercy, O God. See, as we grasp the reality of our faithlessness and how faithful God is, it should actually push us to repentance and confession as it did for the people of Israel and Ezra. So you see that in Ezra 10 and verses 1 to 5. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women and children, gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shashina, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elahim, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let us be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task that we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Ezra is displaying for us a, a, a public confession, but that very public act draws a crowd. Uh, actually, historians say even his father was there. And this confession, uh, and that list of names, I'd encourage you to actually look up those names. These are prominent leaders in that time. There's history there. It's actually quite amazing. But the confession is quite specific. That is, they have been faithless. And it is displayed by that fruit of them marrying foreign women. Actually, the language here is not about even marriage. There's even language in there that says, potentially, the people, the women that they're with, actually, are not necessarily their wives. What's going on is a conviction of sin that moves them to a renewed focus on renewing commitment with God. This is why verse 3 is amazing, that they trembled, or rather they respected, or they, they were overwhelmed with this awe and fear of God's commandments. It's like a revival, a renewed awe of God's word. 
that draws them, and in this context, the law of Moses. Friends, what we see here is a revival in that moment. It's a beautiful picture of when a faithless people are so convicted of their sin that it moves them towards worship. And they realize they've been worshiping something or someone else. And all they can cling on to is nothing about them. Is they, All they can cling on to is God's faithfulness. This is all they have. This is all Ezra has. And this is what he petitions God about. And this is why they even challenge and encourage Ezra to say, Arise, be strong. And actually those echoing words should remind us of passages like Joshua 1 where that same call is to Joshua to be strong and courageous, not just to go and take the land, but actually to keep the law. And so God is now convicting them. And friends, maybe this morning the, the question I have for you had even for me actually what is God asking you to put away? What is your idol? What is my idol? And friends, a reminder of the people sinning in the book of Ezra and repenting. And even Ezra using language of, Lord, would you not be angry with us? Well, the friends, the picture is of the story of the Bible. It's a, it's a reminder that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is why we need the seed to come. And God knows this. This is his ultimate plan. See, the temptation even today and back in Ezra's time, the worship of other gods are constantly and will continuously still be there in this side of heaven. Ezra cannot save his people. He needs the one to come, the seed, Jesus Christ, the one who enters this broken, sin-filled world, the one whose lineage includes Ruth, a Moabite woman, the one who lives amongst both idol worshippers and lawdoers, tax collectors, scribes, lepers, prostitutes, and everything in between. And he knows perfectly he needs to die for the sins of the world. That's why he came. He came to shine light into the darkness. But we know as we study John, yet the darkness did not recognize the light. But thankfully, oh sweet, thankfully, the darkness has not overcome Jesus the light. Because he is the one who is the full expression of God's favor and love. The one who the Father is well pleased in who is willing to become sin, the one who is faithful pays for our faithlessness and dies. This is the cost of sin, death. Jesus tastes it for us on our behalf. Friends, that is a picture of sweet grace. On the third day, he rose again, and as the risen king, to this day, he calls to you and to me to come follow him. Worship him alone. So if you know Jesus, do you know who you are? The Apostle Peter would write these words. It's up here on the screen. As you come to him, 
a living stone, rejected by men, put in the side of God, chosen precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, the cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We are called to be a holy people, a holy community because of Christ and what he has done. But our home is a spiritual home. The sacrifices we offer are spiritual sacrifices. And this is why we are called not to just live lives as individuals, but as a Christian community, because ultimately, as we live counterculturally, and it should be shown to the world that we're countercultural, it bears witness to the world around us. So the question I have for you and for me. In this season, this very season of lockdown, do people know that you and I belong to Jesus? Can they tell the difference? And particularly, friends, one way to test that out, and I, I, I too am being tempted about this, those loopholes that we're constantly looking in relation to the current rules and restrictions. Friends, you know your friends who don't know Jesus are looking and watching. Are we bearing witness in them in this very season? That's an external thing, but underneath that, what's going on? What's causing us to, to kind of push back a little bit? The question is, what is that area in your life? What is that area in my life? That, that the sin beneath the sin that needs to be taken to the cross daily. And that we need to take it seriously. But you know what? One of the greatest joys that we have in this season, in this side of the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus sends his help of the Holy Spirit. The one who empowers us, the one who produces fruit in us of love, joy, peace, patience, and self-control. So when we drop the ball, we confess when he convicts us. When we're struggling, we cry out to him to enable us to fight or to flee. And for those of us who are constantly beating ourselves up, friends, can I encourage you to rest in God's grace? The work of Christ done on your behalf. Or are you and I tempted to fall back, whether we mean it or not, based on another version of works-based righteousness? Look to the one who alone is your righteousness. And rest in him. Friends, if you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith, I want you to know those idols that you worship will never truly satisfy. The true God perhaps is calling you even today to himself to come. To come and worship him. And in worshiping him, will you truly find rest for your soul? And finally, as we consider the very nation that we sit in, um, sit in, live in. There are moments, uh, and this is more of a personal note, friends. Uh, there are moments where I look at our state and our country, even the very city that we call uh, our church and our community home, 
my heart aches. Recently, I loved reading stories of revivals and stuff in various nations. And I came across this story. It was in January 1907 in South Korea. So it was a, a conference and many had gathered. Uh, and there was about 1,500 people. And there were different missionaries and Korean leaders. And they were all seeking to show the need for the Spirit of God to move in them and to, to cause them to live a life of love and holiness and righteousness for the glory of God. And after every short sermon, because they're all Christian leaders, that's what we do, man after man would rise, confess his sin, break down and weep. And they would throw themselves on the floor and beat the floor. And after that, more confession, more repentance, again and again for most of the evening. They would be praying out to God for an outpouring in South Korea. And God answered their prayer. But see, the prayer was answered by revealing to God for mercy, he answered. Church family, <laughs> I have for many of us what, what, what our focus might be is to get out of lockdown. And that's not a bad prayer to cry out to God. And there's various reasons for that. And we should and we should... We should be praying for God's justice and, and the way to do it be done rightly according to his plan. But can I encourage you in the midst of that to pray for our city, to pray for our nation, to pray for the city that we call home, the city of Maroona, the city of Round Ranges that we bound our boundaries on. That the Lord would bring true repentance and revival that we as a church community and family would take the seriousness of God's um, faithfulness, that we as a people will not be faithless, that God would empower us to be faithful, to live in this time, that we would be a people that don't just tolerate the city, but cry out for revival, revival that draws people back to his word, so that many more will come into his kingdom. Would you join with me in prayer? Father in heaven, I thank you that you are always and will continually be the faithful one so beautifully displayed in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord Jesus, we praise you, the faithful one. And Lord, even for those of us right now who are feeling a sense of faithlessness, Display the good news of the gospel afresh into our hearts. For those of us who have lost sight of your goodness and faithfulness towards us, remind us again. Oh God, have mercy on our city. Have mercy on our state. Have mercy on our nation. Have mercy on our world. May many more be confronted by their faithlessness and be confronted by your faithfulness displayed in our glorious Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. So we pray that your kingdom come 
your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks, church family.